You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Look, folks, you need gear to climb. Whether you're a wall climber with every gadget under the brutal, withering sun, or just a simple boulderer with 12 pads, a lithium powered fan, and that portable studio lighting rig for your TikToks. Moan do. Even barefoot boulderers need a flowy cotton shirt and a dab of conditioner once in a while. So, what do we do about the environmental impact of all that gear? Well, whatever we can, I suppose. But Sportiva is here to help your footprint and your nagging conscience because after years of pursuing reductions, in April 2023, Sportiva USA became certified carbon neutral, which means through a combination of sustainable practices, renewable energy, and offsets, Sportiva USA's carbon emission is effectively nil. Is it a perfect balance like ants, trees, and chickadees? Well, probably not. But it is a stated commitment of thought, resources, and budget towards sustainable commerce. Also, remember that the mothership in Italy meets the highest European environmental standards and is a model in the beautiful Val di Fiemme of the Dolomites. So yeah, climbing makes footprints. But go forth knowing that the best climbing boots and shoes don't have to cut too deep with Sportiva. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... The Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll say, you really should. What the hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma Cast. This is your host, Chris Galus. It is May 16th, 2023, about 9.30 p.m. here in Colorado, and this is episode 263 of the Enorma Cast, a conversation, a long-awaited conversation with Steve House. Does everybody know who Steve House is? I feel, I feel like you should. Like, I don't need to introduce him. I mean, you're here anyway. You're going to find out who he is in the two-and-a-half-hour interview. But just in case, just in case, Steve House is one of the greatest alpinists of all time. He carried the torch from the greats like Bonatti and Messner into the 90s and the 2000s. Perhaps a crowning achievement was climbing the RuPaul face on Nanga Parbat with Vince Anderson and is considered one of the greatest alpine ascents ever. He basically climbed it twice. Almost topped out with Bruce Miller on a previous attempt. I mean, Steve was the cutting edge of alpinism for nearly two decades. And perhaps his most influential climb was doing the third ascent of the Slovak Direct on Denali in about 60 hours, a single push, and sort of ushered in this idea of fast and light. He did that ascent with Scott Backies and Mark Twight. And uh, kind of broke the mold with that one. We talk a bunch about it in here. Last year, 
That route was done even faster, but it took a long time for anybody to attempt to break their record. And then he took all that knowledge, all that learning, all those things that they invented and turned it into Uphill Athlete, his coaching business, his training business. Previous to that, he co-wrote Training for the New Alpinism, which has become sort of the Bible of anybody in that game, and also co-wrote Training for the Uphill Athlete. Yeah, just countless expeditions pushing the limit, so many days and nights on the edge. Steve House, real deal. And I tell you what, Steve House has been on this podcast in spirit. He's been part of its foundation for years, actually, strangely. Years ago, I made some joke. I can't even remember what it was, but it was about Steve House putting up the house signal for Steve, and he would come and save you, kind of like the bat signal. Like I don't even remember. But somebody, and I don't remember you, good sir, if you're listening, either. I could go back and figure out who it was. Sent me this uh, really awesome graphic art of the mobile studios putting up the house signal in the mountains. And then I did I show it to Nikki Smith? I can't remember. She was working at Liberty at the time, importing Gravel tools, sponsoring Steve House, I think. Anyway, she sent me like 500 stickers of the image or maybe a 1,000, just a, a little pack of stickers, which at the time I thought was super generous. And uh, those went out to the peoples. Maybe you still have one on your computer. I doubt it. That computer, whatever computer you stuck it to is long gone. Then I tried to get Steve on the show. Just kind of didn't work out. But then this strange thing started happening is where Steve started telling people in AMAs and things like that, when they asked why he hadn't done a NormaCast, he started saying I hadn't asked him to do a NormaCast. And uh, that was not true, actually. I asked him on several occasions. Even my girlfriend, now wife, remembers me asking him. So then I was like, well, that's kind of weird. But you know what? Steve's got a lot on his mind. People forget things. That's fine. But finally... After I got over that, because, you know, people would email me like I was being some sort of dickhead, not asking Steve House to be on the show. Like I would suddenly get these little spats of emails. Why aren't you asking Steve to be on the show? And I'm like, what happened this time? Anyway, so finally, Grant Williams over at Chilo Gear, friends of Steve, friends with me, he sort of finally said enough is enough and orchestrated the emails that got back and forth and finally committed Steve to doing the show. And let me tell you what, Steve House showed up. I'm really psyched on this one. It's a good, long, definitive Steve House interview. I didn't ask all the questions I wanted to ask. I never do. I go back and edit, and I'm like, man, I missed that. I should ask that. But I tell you what, we got a good, solid breadth of an interview here. It's really like two all caps stacked on top of one another. Truly is. All right, the house signal is up, illuminating the sky. Let's get to it. Steve House. Is there any fashion statement in climbing more controversial than shorts? Yes, dear listener. I mean short pants. Knickers, if you will. Too short, too long, too much booty, too little leg, too baggy, and just too darn tight. Well, guten tag, Wolfgang. Is that a number two Camelot in your pocket? Or are you just glad to see me? But in the end, when you do find a pair of shorts you love, it's like a dream pie filled with real dreams. And of course, Black Diamond is here to help you find your dream shorts. From the lightweight flat iron to the bombproof valley shorts, Black Diamond has men and women's shorts for under the harness or a breezy bouldering sesh. 
The new dirtbag short even comes in a retro corduroy option, so you can look just like you rolled out of a hazy VW bus in Camp 4 circa 1977. No, Ranger, sir. You must be smelling that skunk we hit up in Wawona. Poor little guy never had a chance. So come find your next pair of forever shorts at blackdiamond.com or your favorite local shop. Appreciate you coming on the show and coming all the way from Austria. So tell me to start with a little bit about that move. First of all, Chris, just thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure to get a chance to talk to you and your community. It's really, really an honor. So thank you for that. And I'll start with the why. You know, Ava and I have a couple of young boys and we had always said we wanted our kids to grow up biculturally. Uh, my wife Ava is from Austria and I'm obviously from the US and we started to think about when that would be most practicable in terms of schools, friends, that kind of thing. And then COVID came along and everything kind of accelerated there for a while, especially we both have parents that are in their, you know, either early eighties or late seventies. And it was a very stressful time. And we just said, you know, if we're going to do this, we should do it because who knows what we get in the future. And right. so as soon as things let up with regards to uh, COVID-19, we we packed uh, a giant cardboard box that fit on one crate. So it was four feet by four feet, six feet tall. We put all our belongings into that and had that shipped by boat over and yeah, here we are. So we've since sold our house in, in Ridgeway, Colorado, which was a big uh, move, especially mentally. And that was for a variety of reasons, but um, we realized that we're probably not going to come back at least as long as the kids are in school. I don't think I'll grow into my old age and, and spend the last years of my life here. But uh, I think we'll stay here as long as the kids are in school. I mean, it was is that a diff, was that a difficult calculation as far as um, you know your your family here in the states? Of course. Well, my my family it all lives out in Oregon, so and Ava's family is here in Austria. So we have her grandparent, her parents, the boys' grandparents, about an hour fifteen minutes away here. And they're actually spending spring break with them currently. They're down at the seaside. And, you know, we just said, okay, we're going to spend the summers in the States. And it might not be as much time, but it'll be quality time. So that's what we've been doing. We've been going to the U.S. for seven, eight weeks. And this year we also did a couple of weeks, Christmas and New Year's, uh, to have some extra time. And then my parents have been over here uh, once so far for a three-week visit. So, you know, it, we, we actually seem to be managing it pretty well. I reread your book, Beyond the Mountain, and I had actually read it and re I believe I reviewed it for one of the magazines when the magazines hadn't been, you know, put in the memory hole and disappeared off the earth. Um, you know, I wrote this like really long review about it um, because they, they were like, hey, do you want to do a review? I said, sure. And I wrote, you know, what I do, which is, you know, lots and lots of words and delve deep into it. And then I sent it in. They're like, oh, 
yeah, did we not tell you this has to be like 250 words or whatever? And so it's like, I remember having to like cut it down to almost nothing after I'd, you know, poured over this thing and I'd reread passages and I'd been like, God, this is, there's so much in here. And, and then they're like, yeah, we don't need that. We need you to say it's, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and I remember the review ended up being essentially like, uh, I was like a little bit confounded by kind of the, I guess the balance between sort of like, at least what you expressed in the book of like joy in the mountains versus sort of suffering in the mountains. And, and a lot of the book and a lot of your your career has been about like going further and deeper into, you know, the, the, the pain and the suffering of mountaineering. And, and it actually almost became, I don't know, sort of a manifesto, which you can all comment on this and not leave it alone if I'm completely off base here. But the question I kind of had now thinking about your later in life career, your beginning of a family, um, even your image online, you know, as this uphill athlete coach and where does that person you know, who I think you've pointed out at times changed significantly with a, with a serious accident. But where does that young man, that person who was, you know, soloing K7 and, you know, even contemplating soloing the Rupal face at one point um, as, a, as an antidote to having to have to find a partner, where does that young guy sit in your mind these days? Contemplate that yeah, person no. versus the changes. <clears throat> Absolutely. That person is still in here. You know, it's still the, the same person. I think it just expresses differently. And, you know, I got to, I got to go way back to the beginning of what you were saying when you were talking about the, the, the review and the manifesto, mm -hmm. as you, as you said, and the, this sort of examination of the light and the dark, if you will, the joy and the suffering of, of alpine climbing and hard alpinism. And I think that this is absolutely what I was trying to get at. So thank you. I'm, you know, I absolutely felt and still feel to this day really strongly that alpinism is a f art form and that the, the art is ourselves and expressing who we are and we have certain tools and some artists have a paintbrush and some artists have a typewriter and some artists have an ice axe and what's important about that is how the experience changes you and how you evolve from the experience and how you reflect on the experience, how you, how you evolve as, as friends, you know, I mean, often these are in, you know, small groups of really close friends or teammates or partners. And this is absolutely what it was about. And I think that, you know, something I haven't really talked about, but one of the very strong reasons even then i wrote that when i was 35 i guess and maybe i was 36 and I, the reason one of the strong reasons i wrote it was that i wanted to get some of it my story down in case i died you know it's like there's you know i'm still in this i'm still kind of doing this i've been 
a part of this. My eyes are wide open. I know what can happen. And I really want to share my process and I want to share all of it, not just, not just the, the good part, because I really truly believe that, and this is reflected in how I build up athlete today, that it's really about the process and engaging the process and engaging and asking questions and learning and evolving and taking feedback and examining and all of these things through all of the ways to, 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 to not to get better per se, because that implies that there's like a, a progression. I don't think that the progression needs to be like this sort of, you know, curve that you like you're plotting a stock price or something i think that the progression is you know between the beginning of life and the end of life and you know we have this amount of time and what can we learn what can we experience what can we feel what can we share what can we tell what can we teach what can we learn these are all the questions that make being human interesting right and that's alpinism is such an incredible vehicle for all of those questions because you do have to go so deep into yourself and into other people and face really, really hard things like mortality and literally hold it in your hand sometimes. And I just don't know any other, you know, voluntary human experience that is equally intense and, you know, both, both dark and light. Yeah, and it's. I also remember thinking, you know, at the time when I read it, and uh, originally was, and you know, I, I actually told, um, you know, one of your compatriots, Mark Twite, the same thing. Like, I was pretty certain too after reading it, and and knowing your history, it wasn't me just reading your book, but obviously I knew who Steve House was and what he was doing, and you know what was popping up in those little news, you know, hot flashes or whatever, however we hell we got our news before the internet. I was like, yeah, this guy, I don't know if he's going to make it. But then, you know, there were some big changes and there are parts of the book that, 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 um, in retrospect are, are previewing these changes. I think that, I mean, the fact that you wrote it was even, I think a moment of like self-reflection of, of, I, I should I keep going? You know, are are these things going to happen? Can you talk a little bit about um, this accident that you've cited as being a, a major turning point along this line? And I can't remember if it's in the if it had happened. No, I think it happened a few years after you wrote the book. If I'm thinking of your timeline, because um, I think that fits into this discussion of of uh, of changes and and evolution a great deal. Yeah, it did definitely happen. After I published the book, the book was Beyond the Mountain was published in, I think, 2008 or 2009. And my accident on Mount Temple happened in March 2010. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the details of the accident here, mostly for my own reasons. It's very triggering for me. Um, to kind of relive, and I don't, and there's plenty of information out there if people want to go read. I posted about it in the past, and and so on. But that's not an experience I need to relive uh, right now. But what I was, a number of things happened, but the most um, critical thing was that 
you know, I, I, something, something just really deep shifted. And I think what that was, was this idea that I had done enough that I finally reached a point, like I had not at that up until then ever felt like I had done enough. And after that experience, I thought, you know, if I had died, I would have been happy with the amount of climbing I'd done and the accomplishments I had been able to kind of realize over the course of my climbing career. And therefore, I don't need to kind of like keep going back there. Like, what am I accomplishing now? Like, I already did enough. Like, the glass is, you know, full. Like, the scorecard is full, whatever. I played nine innings, whatever the analogy you want to use. How do I uh, continue to find the motivation for that? And it was also, I'd been on the planet long enough. I was 39 at the time that, you know, I realized that there were a lot of other experiences. I, think that actually, you know, my guiding career was really instrumental in opening my eyes and introducing me to an a incredible variety of people from all walks of life that were interesting and successful and reflective. And by then I'd sort of stored up all of this other information and been like, you know, there's so many thing, interesting things to do in this world. I think that I want to do more than just one thing in this lifetime. Do you think that it would have happened without the seeing the light at the end of the tunnel kind of experience? Um, you, you know, reflecting, were you evolving that way or do you think you would have, you know, just dug in and, and kept, kept trying to top yourself? I was evolving that way, and I've told this story a number of times. Um, Uli Steck and I used to have this conversation pretty regularly, and uh, we were roughly the same age. He's a little younger than I was, but we, we explicitly talked about it. And one of the things that brought it up one year, his brother was a professional ice hockey player in Switzerland, and he was like, yeah, my brother didn't make the team this year. So his career is over. Like he was a professional athlete. Now he didn't make his team. Like nobody picked him up and like, he has no job. Like he's got to go back and be a carpenter now, which is what his trade was. And, you know, the conversation then went, well, like, well, when do we not make the team? <laughs> you know, where's the, where, where, you know, there's obviously like all these young talents coming up and so on, but within mountain sports and and there's not really a good established model honestly for people to evolve into something else and i actually this is something i'm interested to talk about and i'm happy to talk about here though i didn't didn't plan on it i i think this needs to evolve in our in our mountain culture whereby we can make room for people to change and take on different roles within our communities and within our society because otherwise you make people feel trapped. Like if, if I think it was actually in a way that accident, you know, afterwards and I was especially early on when I was physically unable to do very much. I mean, I went out of the hospital in a wheelchair. Like I, 
uh, was really worried about like just how I was going to take care of myself in the future. Like I didn't know, you know, I didn't know if all my sponsors were going to drop me. That was my only re- income source. You know, I could go, I could obviously couldn't have gone to guiding at that point. Like I had no other skill to make a living. And so that was also, I didn't have a cushion, you know, and that was also pretty scary. So I think that one of the things that I've, I noticed was within my community around me, um, specifically in Southwest Colorado, but for example, Indian Creek in the springtime and you're hanging out and, you know, I was watching the climbers of a generation or two generations older than I am, you know, around the campfire, at the crag or whatever, listening to their stories and listening, watching how they're interacting and, and also like kind of projecting myself, like, is that what I want to be doing in 20 years? Do I want to, do I want to be here in Indian Creek in a, you know, patched up down jacket? Like there's part of me that does, right? Because there's part of me that idolizes that lifestyle and everything about it. Like we could go on, we could have a whole podcast just about how awesome it is to be a dirtbag climber and, you know, do that. But, you know, this is important to understand. Like everyone is different. And for me, that wasn't going to be the right thing. And I knew that in my, in my stomach, I knew that in my gut. Like I, this was one of the things that's been really great about the last, I don't know, a couple of years of my life where, and I think it's one of the great things about getting older that I love who I am and I love how I show up in this world. And I don't have to make excuses for that anymore. There was so much of my life where I kind of, tried to bottle and hide my ambition or my drive or my intensity because it made other people uncomfortable. And now that I'm older, like I'm just like, Hey man, this is me. I'm super intense and I'm really driven and I like to like shake things up. I like to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to make you uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you hard questions. I'm going to ask you to ask me hard questions. That's what I'm about. And if, you know, and, and that's, that's me. Like I'm not gonna. So I, I say that because as I went through this period after my accident, I was also having to make peace with that part of myself, though I didn't really understand it in those terms at the time and be like, you know, I can't just keep climbing. You know, my goal was, you know, the RuPaul face, the West face of K2 and the West face of Maklu and Alpine style. Those were the three biggies that I wanted to do. And, you know, when I had my accident, I was training for K2. I had the permit. I paid for the permit, actually. Everything was set up. It was Uli and I. And we would have had an incredible chance of climbing the West Face by a new route on K2 in in really fast style. And that would have been amazing. And I probably would have just kept going because I was in my body and in my mind at my peak physically and mentally for alpinism. And it would have, when you're actually at your peak and doing your best climbing of your life, and you're not going to stop then. <laughs> I mean, some, somebody might, I mean, that's the Walter Bonatti story, right? And that always haunted me. Like he, you know, sold the North face of the Matterhorn and then 
said that was it. He just walked away from alpinism and never went back. And that takes a tremendous amount of discipline. And that also wasn't me, right? Like, if I had climbed K2 with Uli, like, I immediately would have been, like, going to Bakalu again. And that I would have just done that. And, you know, those are both super low probability events climbing those those big faces so you know there's a good chance that it would have ended really differently so i think that um you know while i certainly not i would never say that i'm grateful for the accident or anything like that like it really sucked it was incredibly painful and i almost died and my body still hurts on a daily basis 13 years later but it did make me see a lot of things for what they are and gave me clarity with a lot of things. It, it literally, you know, gave me my wife, which literally gave me my family, my kids. So, you know, there's a, a lot of amazing things came out of that. A question I have about, you know, this event that, that became this epiphany towards all these things. I mean, it's, it's easy to wrap up in retrospect and, and, you know, we have, like, I'm going to live every day in the moment. You know, people have almost have a car accident or something and it like shocks them for a little bit. But, you know, how well did it take? Like, so you, you, you recovered, you know, your, your body function. You were able to get out there on the mountains again. Like, you know, it, it would be a nice bow on it if you were just suddenly like, okay, I'm done and I'm going to just move forward with these other things. So, like, what was sort of the residual hangover, um, <laughs> the, the bumps in the road towards, uh, towards who you are now so to speak at least at that time because i know i mean i'm, I'm saying this with a with kind of a chuckle in my voice because i absolutely know that those things do not happen like that <laughs> oh yeah absolutely not and it's a great question and I, we should answer that i mean it was brutal uh i mean you should have my wife on a podcast to talk about that like that was that was uh she's the one that probably suffered the most um it was uh horrible uh it was an incredibly difficult journey um and i don't think i'm you know out of it but i i also don't think you're ever out of it in a way right like it's just yeah it it, it wasn't clean cut i really had to go you know i went to makalu two more times after that before you know really realizing like no this is this is not happening in this body anymore like it's not the same it doesn't it's not the same machine it doesn't work in the same way that it used to and there was really this struggle to figure out what value i had in the world because i didn't know and I think that writing training for the new alpinism with Scott Johnson was a really important decision. And also another one of these things that kind of definitely steered my life and in a really positive and great direction. Because as you'll remember, I, I, Eva and I started this thing called Alpine Mentors and we raised some money and we were going to mentor our young alpinists and stuff and it kind of i mean we i had some great experiences and we did it for a little while but that that wasn't it like there's no business model there kind of essentially to, to support that and i went back to guiding and vince and i kind of got 
you know, Skyward Mountaineering kind of a little more up and going and more of a, a concern going concern were enough that we could have an office person and a few other guides. And, and that was really fulfilling and really cool to get to, you know, engage in that with Vince. And I think Skyward Mountaineering is still doing really well. And, uh, that's a, that's a great, uh, thing to come out of it. But all of those things were just sort of like trying to figure out like tests, trying to figure out like what value I had and what I could do. And, and frankly, this is going to sound bad probably, but you know, the sponsorships were kind of a crutch and they kind of let me limp along for a long time when frankly, I probably shouldn't have been. And because I could live financially, I could survive you know, handily on that and not just survive. I could like live a normal life, a normal middle-class lifestyle. And that just pushed it all out, right? Like I could just kind of limp along on that for a long time. I'll say this about your book too. You have this whole section in it about, about fatalities and how they were able to, you were just able to like let them go you know, and move forward. And I think with a lot of accidents too, especially climbing ending accidents, we kind of do that as well. Like, oh yeah, well, you know, maybe they'll, I don't know what they're doing now, right? Almost the thing. So I, I'm just saying that it's like, I completely understand this removal of identity that comes with, with, you know, taking those things out of your life. And the other thing is that, you know, so much of your, um, your climbing upbringing had these feet in this old school world, you know, famously, um, you, you learned to Alpine climb to a certain extent in Slovenia and like, you know, the famously hardcore lifestyle do or die kind of mentality was what we all revered, I think coming up and I'm about the same age as you, I think I might be a little bit older, but you know, the whole end of the seventies with the British climbers, just like, you know, they would just go until they disappeared. And it's almost like, that's what's supposed to happen. And and in a way, I feel like part of Steve House of Beyond the Mountain felt that way too. And and definitely you felt that way on top of, of Nanga Parbat the first time you were up there with Bruce. Like, this is how I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to disappear into the mountains or not. Um, I mean, can you comment on that? Like, you know, that Messner 70s alpinism sort of attitude of, of part of the hero's journey is to disappear into the mountains um, and never come back. Yeah. I mean, you know, I won't name names to protect the innocent, but I remember one time when someone in the alpinism circle had an, a near death experience and then was like talking a lot about it afterwards. The comment a friend made to me, it was like, she'd just shut up and die like a man. <laughs> Like, like that was literally, and it wasn't, it, this was, this was not said as a joke. This was said like totally deadpan. Like, no, this is, this isn't what you do. You don't like have this close call and then come back and like, blah, 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 talk about it. No, you like shut up and you die like a man. Like that's what you're supposed to do, which is so messed up. Right. And that, you know, whole generation of, you know, the Boardman Tasker generation, you know, I mean, like totally. Um, and, you know, Doug Scott and Chris Bonington were kind of the only survivors more or less of that, I guess. 
And uh, I'm sure that somebody will correct me, but that's, that's really, frankly, I think something that I want to address and I want, uh, you know, not me, I, I want us to address as a community, as a culture that I want us to redefine success as Barry Blanchard once defined it to me, said success is dying of old age at home, surrounded by family and friends. And, you know, okay, well, if you're an alpinist and that's what you define success as, that that really turns the tables or flips this paradigm of, you know, the sort of 70s and 80s alpinism that, that I was certainly reading on. In your book, too, the you know, we're talking about you having a lot of these revelations some years after writing it, but I think the again, in retrospect, the preview of it is actually talking about Barry in the book. Um, cause he's in the, in the end of the book, you know, on, um, M16 and those routes, he's, he's ahead of you in that he's, he's even talking about having one foot on one side of, of the equations already. Um, you know, but it's, but as usual, like as a younger man, or as you said, a, a person who thought of themselves in their prime, like you were probably like, well, dude, you still got some climbs left. Like, what are you talking about? You know, not, not necessarily internalizing like what this older, slightly older generation in a way, I, I wouldn't say more experienced, but different experiences than you, um, you know, was thinking about. So it's just kind of fascinating the way our minds work as young men or, or you were in your thirties, but nevertheless, um, yeah, like this isn't me. This is like, I'm going to go forever. I'm going to, you know, live forever. Maybe it's sort of a paradox of like, I'm going to live forever, but I'm also maybe never going to make it. It's, it's a fascinating, like magical thinking that, that alpinists kind of have to have to keep, keep pushing into those realms. Yeah. And, you know, there's a couple of points that are interesting mm -hmm. here. I think one is that, I was so angry with Twight and Backies and Blanchard and all those guys that were older than me and because I was losing my best partners, essentially, right? And I didn't want them to stop. But that was purely selfish. It wasn't about what was best for them. That was entirely about what was best for me. And secondly, I think one of the things that I figured out, you mentioned briefly that I I learned a uh, alpine climb in Slovenia, which is which is absolutely true. Uh, one of the things that was really strong in that culture that I think is really a powerful lesson is that they would orchestrate it so that young climbers were climbing with older climbers all the time. When I went back, came back to the states, like it was like me and my peers, you know, we and neither of us knew what the hell we were doing, and so we would have these epics, but. That, that was like really frowned upon. Like that was not what you were supposed to do in that, in the Slovenian culture that I learned to alpine climb in. And so I really brought that forward throughout my career. Like I was the youngest person on a climbing team until I was almost 40. Like I really pushed that as far as I could. Like, and now I'm adding Vince into that equation just for a little bit of fudge, even though he's only like six months older than me, but, but still, um, that's something that I think, you know, that combination of climbing with older climbers and then watching them kind of start to age out, which they absolutely should. Like they, you know, they absolutely 
And I wouldn't say age out. I would say evolve because as I said a few minutes ago, I don't think it's a, you know, it's just, it's just between a, you know, beginning and end and we have a life and there's a lot of things to experience and do. And alpinism is amazing, but it's not everything. And, you know, for most of my life and, you know, at least until I was 39, I thought alpinism could and should be everything. I think that for me, you know, I really did struggle to find role models of people from within climbing that had transitioned out, particularly of my generation or close generations. I mean, like even, you know, Barry might be an example, but yet he, you know, was is a mount guide and that's his you know, that's his profession. He is very proud of it and he uh, practices it at an extremely high level and is very satisfied with that. You know, Mark Twight, you know, he has his own, and you guys had your own podcast about this and talked about it at length, but, you know, he had his own journey. I mean, I, I for me, Mark is an artist, you know, truly like in his soul, like, he he makes art like it doesn't matter if it's a camera or nice axe or whatever like that's that's who he is and what he does and how he shows up in the world and so that wasn't that also wasn't really a a, a roadmap for me um, because I'm not that way um, in the I just show up differently so you know I had to think a lot and one of the things that was the climber that. You know, uh, let me ask you a question. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to switch this around for a second. I want to ask you a question, Chris. Name some of the people that came from within the climbing community and or are members of the climbing community. They could be past, present, or future. Well, obviously not future, but present or past that best manifested their vision of the world. And I and, and that sounds very like vague, right? But how do you define success, right? Like somebody may define success by making a lot of money. Somebody else by define success by like putting up a lot of first ascents. Like they're very, very different things, but each can be true for those two different people, right? So that's why I so sort of who, when you think about all the characters that have come out of the client, the, this lore of, of climbing culture that we have, like, who do you think about? Like who pops into your mind? Like, wow, they really like, did it up doesn't matter i mean honestly it, you know i i it's like freaking tc don't dodge the question um oh okay. yeah that's it no okay. that, i think i mean I, I have a personal relationship with tommy that's you know a friendship and um i've known him for his entire life and it's not been without his struggles and you know he's still you know he's still trying to to do it and to be great at it, but he's also finding this transition to, I think, almost to politics. And I, I keep badgering him about that, um, but at least environmental activism um, that's allowing him to continue this connection, but also moving, you know, moving in a different direction than having to perform on the rock, so to speak. Um, and I feel like, yeah, and it's a, a lot of personality. The guy, the guy perseveres and and sees opportunity where other people see see you know, the end or see uh, things like that. So, I mean, he's, he strikes me as a guy who's adjusted and, and he, humble and, um, 
has a good sense of humor and has found a, a, a good place, at least at the moment. For me, it would be Yvonne. You know, I just don't think anyone has made a bigger impact on anyone that came out of climbing has made a bigger impact on the world than the Chouinards. I have a hard time thinking of, of someone, I mean, arguably, you know, um, I mean, you could, you could argue about this, but, uh, but I think that he would be, he was the one that came to my mind. And that's is when I really thought about that and maybe, the, you know, cause this was 10 years ago, Tommy 10 years ago, hadn't even climbed the Don wall yet. So, you know, I would, I didn't have him as a, as a role model, but when I thought about what Ivana Melinda have accomplished, and I'm not just talking about Patagonia, but the impact that they've had on our world and continue to have on our world and will continue to have on our world. Like I'm, I have the, so much respect for that. That is so hard to do. That is so hard to do. That is so much harder than any first ascent that you can climb on any mountain. I don't, I don't you know, it's not even the same. Not even the same game. You know, but it's it, it, we're talking about this like you you become like a manager of a Best Buy or something. Like we, you know, you, you have not like just forsaken the world of climbing. I mean, your your uphill athlete, right. uh, you know, regime and your coaching regime is is certainly as deep in climbing as, as you know, a lot of people's lives are at this point in their life. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of funny. It's like, we're getting to this point, like you just walked away and got a desk job somewhere and, you know, wear cashews right. and a whatever. So, <laughs> so right. it just occurred Absolutely. to me during that. I'm like, Steve, you're still here, buddy. You're still here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I very much am. And I really actually, uh, love that, that I get to be still in this community that I love so much and have all these connections to and within and it's just this giant web of friendships and connections and associations right and uh yeah i couldn't i couldn't do what you know and then the same with patagonia right like with yvonne like you know chenard equipment and black diamond equipment and patagonia all came out of his experiences as a climber you know it's that's part of the Part and par part and parcel, and it always will be for those brands. So you know, it, it doesn't. It's not again. It's not like he, you know, that would be more the Doug, Doug Tompkins story. You know, Doug, of course, was on the you know first ascent of uh, Fitzroy with on that expedition, and then founded the North Face, and then sold that, and then founded Esprit, and made a bunch of money. But Esprit obviously is very different than you know. Patagonia or the North Face. So, but then he made a huge impact by creating all these national parks in Patagonia with Christine Tompkins. And, you know, there, there's just a film coming out about that shortly. And so, I mean, there's, there's other climbers who have had huge impacts, right? Like, but, um, yeah, maybe they were a little more outside of, of the, the culture of climbing. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, your connection to the current generation of alpinists, you know, you've been coaching these people and, and even if you haven't been directly, your, your book uphill athlete certainly is on, I, I would imagine anybody's shelf that's in the game right now. We'll cite that as, as an inspiration, even if, even if they don't do what's in there, they've read it and, and maybe sort of latently incorporate a lot of it into what they do. But, um, recently, 
this last year, you know, the Slovak Direct became back in the news uh, in a heavy way. And it, and it figures prominently in your career, not only as a great ascent, but I think, you know, so much of what you do now sprang from, from that um, in terms of what you can do to push yourself in the mountains and how you trained for it, I'm sure went into those first, uh, that first book that you did and, and, um, you know, with Mark's influence and all that sort of thing. So tell me about this, you know, these moments this last year, and I know you've done some presentations, I think with, with Sam Hennessy, um, about the Slovak. So what happened was, is, you know, real quick is, is you and, and Scott Backey's and Mark Twite, did a, a route, the second ascent of a route that had been, or was it the third? Did it get done? Oh yeah, it got done right before you did it. Yeah, so it was the third. But shaved days and days off of the time and did it in some sixty-hour push. Um, you know that brought you yet again to the to the very brink um, in multiple ways. And I don't know how much you were necessarily comfortable with or involved with. You know the 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 articles that came out with Mark's article, what was the justification for an elitist attitude um, that is still storied in, in, you know, alpinist lore that felt like a lot, Mark, and not so much you, <laughs> at least, you know, putting was, it out there publicly Mark, in yeah. such a way. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I did. I read it. In but nevertheless, the first time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, I mean, it, it ushered in what was to become this like, light and fast era in a lot of ways that I think like really, you know, kind of exploded this spring on the, the Slovak direct being done in, in 20 some hours and then 17 and some minutes. Um, just like, you know, I think is shocking a thing that's happened in alpinism in, in, you know, decades, at least since you guys did it. Um, so tell me about your impressions of, of hearing that news. Did you have an idea that, that, the trend was towards something like that or was it completely shocking? And then um, tell me about your interaction with these guys that uh, are up there just like blazing up something like that. And, and again, in a lot of ways, you know, on your shoulders. Yeah. There's uh, so much to reflect on in that route and that climb, that experience of the climb, the experience of even understanding that we could do the climb. I think that that's, that's the, that's actually the, the big thing here is the couple of years of i mean at the time we called it convincing ourselves that we could do that like it took a lot of convincing and it had to because we were betting with our lives essentially right like well not essentially we were so that was the step was that whole mental process in the years before of understanding and verifying for ourselves that it was possible. It's not like you can go in a laboratory and, you know, test <laughs> the capacities and then say, okay, yeah, we, we, we dialed this up to, to, to 11 and it didn't break. And okay, yeah, we were done, whatever. Like there's, you got to go out in the mountains and, you know, work up to it. And, and I think that, you know, it was really a combination of, the climbs that had happened in uh, particularly 1994, 1995, 96, and 97 in the Alaska range. And those were, you know, Mark and Scott climbing deprivation on Mount Hunter in 
you know, I forget what it was, 40 some hours, uh, Eli and Helmuth and I climbing the first ascent of the father and son's wall in about, I think 36 hours. And the next year I climbed a new route on the, um, Washburn face. And I don't remember, uh, 14 hours or something. And then Steve Swenson and I climbed a, a new route the following year and like 30 something hours. And each of those, I'm not just, you know, there's, uh, Joe Josephson and I doing something similar on King Peak and the Yukon territory. Uh, and these things, each one of them is really worth mentioning because each one is a piece to the puzzle. Like the route that, uh, Steve Swenson and I did, um, what we called radio, what was called radio tower buttress at the time. And we call it Massioli's pillar after our friend, Steve Massioli that, uh, was killed on the moonflower route that year. That was really technical. Like it was, that was all pitched climbing, right? And it was also fairly high. Like the top of it is almost 15.8. So high enough that you're not, you know, moving as fast as, as you were. You know, the things like the Washburn face was, or the father and sons, those were just these giant, you know, 6,000 feet. 6,000 foot faces and the South face of Denali is 8,000 feet. So it was like, okay, well we did this super technical thing. It wasn't, it was 4,000 vertical feet of, of elevation gain and loss. We did these other things that were less technical, but they were, they were, they were bigger. There were 6,000 feet. The South face is technical and it's 8,000 vertical feet and it's a higher altitude. Like you start to like, you know, you're, you're weaving, you know, you're pulling threads together and, and trying to weave them and say, okay, yeah, we can do that, you know. And Mark and I went there in in 1999, the two of us, and honestly, like, put a lot of energy and a whole month of our lives into trying to do that, just the two of us, the Slovak, and we were just too scared. We were just too scared. And I think if we had been less scared, I think we could have done it from the terms of point of view of the conditions and our physical capabilities. We could have done it, and we could have done it probably in a similar style, in a similar time. I really, truly believe that, we, because nothing changed in the next 12 months, except that we thought about it more, we got more, we, more convincing was done. And then we added Scott, mm-hmm. who is like the world's greatest cheerleader. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, just to put it in perspective, if, you know, people haven't read the book, I always do that. I talk talk on this like everybody knows what i'm talking about but you know the the original ascent of of the climb on denali had been done in something like eight days the second ascent was real similar uh six maybe i can't can't quite recall but you know these alpine style but very long ascents and using um i think the first ascent used fixed ropes and and you can clarify that but um to sort shave of it off style to, yeah capsule style so to shave it off to to uh what ended up being 60 some hours to and and to do it in a single push without any of any of the extra ropes and things like that was i don't know was kind of a uh, a big step in in the evolution um so let's fast forward then to again this last year um and i don't know actually it's funny cuz it feels like nothing happened in the interim <laughs> because of the way news works but but yeah it it, it i i've found it to be quite astounding and what you know i do pay attention to what's going on in the alpine climb world world too but maybe it also felt that way because there was such, you know, this mythology and weight to what you guys did. Um, 
you know, helped by by Mark's article and things like that. So tell me about the the evolution as you saw it and and again how you felt about finding out that these guys, you know, in two successive ascents, uh shaved it down to less than a day. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wanted to go back to our process, you know, whatever essentially twenty five years ago, because I think that that explains the interim. I also was like, I was sort of just waiting. Like I just, I knew it was a matter, I knew it would happen. I knew it was a matter of time. And it felt like things in the Alaska range. I mean, I'm going to probably catch a lot of crap for this or criticism for this, but it sort of felt like things weren't, we're had just we're staying the same for a really long time, and there wasn't really that core activist until you know. Um, so when when Sam and Michael and Rob did that, it was like okay, it happened. Like great, like it was, it was just you know. And I even knew like before when because we were you know people were texting me, and then somebody was like, yeah, well, Sam and Rob and. And, and, and Michael are about to fly in and they were going to do the same thing. And it was like, okay, well, yeah, sure. Okay. Somebody essentially broke trail. Like that's going to be even faster. There's screw holes in the ice. Like it's, you know, et cetera. So it was kind of a relief. Um, and I was just really happy that somebody had come along and picked up the baton that, you know, we had so passionately sort of fought for and decided that it was worth picking up because I think that that's one of the greatest things you fear as you age as a climber is that you just become irrelevant or what you're, what you fought so hard for and worked so hard for just isn't relevant to the younger generations. And they just decide to take it a totally different direction, which is entirely their right, but it would, also, it's extremely gratifying to be like, oh, wow, they like thought that that route in that style was really worth putting a lot of effort into, was worth stripping down even further and improving upon even more. And that's like incredibly uh, gratifying, but not for me, actually, like uh, not, uh, not gratifying for me personally. It's gratifying in the sense that like... I am so happy that other people had that experience. Does that make sense? Like, cause if there's one route that I could do again, it would be that route. Cause it was that good. It was just so good. And in such an incredible place, it's you're in the sun a lot. Like there's so many amazing things about that route. And I was just so happy that, for those guys that take out to experience that because it is such an incredible, I think it's the most, for me, it's the most beautiful climb on the planet. It just is just, just those ice runnels and that rock and Denali. I mean, it's the highest mountain in North America. I mean, it's just like there couldn't be a bigger stage in a, in a more beautiful, beautiful route and a more, more wonderful climb. So I was just super happy that they got to experience that, especially in such a, intimate style yeah it, it, i think it also speaks a little bit i mean your your attitude towards it speaks a little bit to an evolution you know certainly 
it, it, you know, older alpinists can go either way. They can be pissed that the younger generation is crushing them or they can be excited, you know, and, and maybe had this happened two years after you guys did it, who knows, you know, um, there might've been more competition, but it's, it's an awesome thing. And I've been thinking about, I mean, from the moment I heard the news, because I knew your history and I had talked to Mark a couple of years ago, you know, so I'm, I'm like deep in that history of that route and what you guys did. I was like, oh man, I just, I want to be like in the room with, with Steve right now as he's like finding out about this to find out what's going on. Because, you know, again, it, it's, it's a, such a marker and all the things you've done since then, as far as, you know, training these co coaching and all this stuff, I, it stands as sort of this, again, this test of what you were all trying to figure out about how to climb in the mountains. But it's also, fa I mean, I, I, t I've talked to Jackson at length, you know, they did, uh, the, the first kind of, they, they actually sort of crossed the Rubicon first in a sense, a couple of weeks before the, the, the guys who actually hold the record, so to speak, all these dudes are friends, mm -hmm. Jackson, right. Alan Rousseau, right. Matt Cornell, yeah. you know, I know Alan. Rob Smith's in there. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's just, it's funny though, when you read their media around it versus like what came out, you know, obviously for Mark at the time, like. The cool thing about it and the thing that really makes me smile is just, it's not a casualness, but it's just like, a, uh, yeah, that's what we have been put here to do is to do these sorts of things. And everybody says it's dangerous. We don't think it was. Here's what we did to, and, and then when you, when you break it down to the 17 hour and 10 minutes sent, like, you know, put that against like the, the, the you know, the grinding you guys were doing at hour 60, you know, and, and that's a real big part of the story. I mean, 17 hours and 10 minutes, any climber that climbs big routes, whether you climb them in the Black Canyon or whatever, you've, you've done that. Like you, you've gone that far in yourself. And it's just like, that's, you know, kind of like a normal hard day. Um, so to, it just, when I, th I think about putting it in perspective of just like, yeah, they, they topped out and were, you know, like, okay, we're done. Like, and then we're going to help, you know, I think they got involved in a rescue on the way down the mountain. Like, um, isn't that the second, I think Michael and those guys were involved in a rescue on the way down the mountain on the other side. And it's the evolution and over the hill to like almost this weird casualness, um, has to be sort of fascinating in your mind as well. Yeah. And I remember, you know, this is one of the things that we would actually, pointed out like at the time because you know i don't know like if there's a perception that i'm so sensitive about i don't know whatever criticism or people climbing my roots faster or whatever like there's not at all it's, it's actually completely the opposite because it's like taking feedback like you want feedback you want hard questions you want to reflect you want to figure things out and one of the things that we figured out after we climbed the Slovak Direct and we talked to Kevin Mahoney and Ben Gilmore, who climbed it like a month earlier than us and did the second ascent. One of the things that I did is I actually like, uh, I can't remember which one of them. One of them had kept a notebook and written down all these times of different things. And um, we calculated that, that their climbing time was essentially the same as our climbing time. Like the difference between six days and you know, 60 hours was basically the time that they spent eating, cooking, and sleeping. 
that's it. So like we didn't actually climb it any faster. We right. just didn't right. do the sleeping <laughs> and cooking. Right. <laughs> uh, we'd still stopped four times and fueled and, and all right. that stuff. I mean, we did all kinds of things that you would never do. To, like we, we carried two stoves and two pots because we were worried that one would fail, you know, because they weren't super reliable or they weren't a hundred percent reliable. So yeah, these, all these things kind of evolve out of the system. And the interesting trend, right, is that the skill level goes up, the complexity goes down. And that's the beauty of it, right? Like those guys are way better climbers, albeit with probably better, some better, a few better tools, but still they're for sure all way better technical climbers. They're probably all fitter than we were. And they had more information and they had, you know, things. And of course it evolved that way. That's what's supposed to happen. <laughs> if, that, if that doesn't happen, then, then you're in trouble, you know? And I think that this is, you know, one thing I, I know maybe flip the, or just go completely left field, but believe me, there's a, there is a connection. Like when I was, and maybe you were going to get to this, but when in 2004, four years later, when I climbed K7, and I climbed that by myself, and it was this, it was this incredible journey, and I'm happy to talk more about it. But uh, one of the things in that situation, in that scenario, that was the sort of the juxtaposition, sort of the opposite, was that was the year the uh, a group of Russian climbers, very good alpinists, climbed the north face of Yanu in expedition style, and you know, for me. This it was really like this. With these two are two partially because of the PLA door and whatnot. Our two ascents were com were compared a lot. Like Steve Solo on the K seven versus these guys on on Yanu with like whatever it was sixteen seventeen climbers. All this fixed rope, blah blah blah, super technical. And the comparison completely misses the point because. Well, let me ask you a question, Chris. It's really because this is really the question: like, is climbing a sport? Is it? Is it a sport or is it not? Uh, yeah, man, that's a, that's a big one. But I, I, I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't think it is either. Because, but let's let's step aside. Right. If you let's suppose we take the the position that climbing is a sport, then. From my understanding of that definition, typically there are things like competitions, there's a score, there's there's a winner, there's a loser, which for me are all reasons that climbing doesn't fit the definition of a sport. But a lot of people and a lot of cultures have tried to fit climbing into the this paradigm of sport, of traditional sport, and cram the spirit for what for me is a square peg into a round hole and that completely misses the point of climbing for me for my experience because it's not about this is like what the 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 russians in my from what i could understand from my conversation with them they saw it as in those terms of a sport of a competition of winning of conquering of these being you know better than someone else that was the that was their framework for alpinism you know my framework 
and case Evans, a great example of that was like, Hey, I went there for two summers. I made like seven different attempts. Like all of those attempts were incredible experiences. <laughs> like one of those experiences, I got to the top. And after that, I didn't have to go up there anymore. That chapter was closed for me. That experience was closed for me. And that was the bookend. But it wasn't like I did something better than someone else or faster than someone else. I wasn't competing with anyone. I wasn't scoring. I wasn't, you know, I was experiencing and finding out what that experience meant to me. And this is, I take this back to the Slovak because this is what I love so much about what those guys did and, and how they handled themselves afterwards, like you said, and how they talked about it, where they're just like, and, and I agree with them. Like, it's not that dangerous how they did it. You know, they were only on the mountain for 17 hours and they're super good climbers. And these pitches are t super well within their, very well within their capabilities. And they have a great equipment. They have great rock. They have great ice. They have perfect weather, almost perfect conditions. Like, yeah, that's when you do that stuff. Like, that's how you do that. Like, that's actually the paradigm. That's how that's done. Like, they just showed us how that's done. Like, for me, it's sort of the pinnacle of the evolution. And I hope that that's how all sense of the Slovak Direct are carried out in the future. And, you know... Because the other model is like putting is like the Everest model where they're just going to, you know, there's, you know, seriously investigating, you know, installing a, 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 a steel cable to just replace the fixed ropes and just put that in like it's a via ferrata, you know, that's the other option. And for, for me, that's not what alpinism is about. It's not my place to say what other people do, but. For a route like uh, the Slovak Direct, that's how I hope that people can continue to experience it for, you know, that's how you can climb that route 200 years from now and have the same experience that Mark and I and, and Scott did, right. or, or nearly so. Yeah, and it's also fascinating. It seemed to be this blip, but it, in, in so many ways, you, you talked about those years of puzzle pieces coming up to your ascent. And those guys, too, were, I mean, they they were living and totally. breathing Alaskan climbing. And I mean, and that's another evolution of what you also were involved in this idea of both guiding and climbing and your guiding is getting you in shape to do your climbing. And, and you were doing that in the Alaska range too. But these guys are like, I mean, they're just mountain goats. They're just the fittest, most comfortable, uh, I mean, alpinists in terms of that, you know, the world has ever seen. It's all, it's all just like, secondhand knowledge to them to be in those mountains up there and to understand those conditions. And it's just, it's just fascinating because again, I, I don't like the word casual, even though I don't have a better one because it's, it's, you know, obviously they're deadly serious about the way they operate in the mountains and the way they look at risk and, and all those sorts of things, but their fitness and their comfort in that environment just allows them to have like this kind of fascinating joy with it all um, that I thought came out of their media as well. And it's also, you know, has to do with a 17 hour day is not going to, you know, start to, your body doesn't start to decompose or whatever. So you don't have to go into right. that, that sort of pain cave. But um, I, I mean, I don't really have anything to say, but it, it all still feels like an evolution of what you guys were doing um, as alpinists as well. And I think any of those guys are going to, are going to point to you and Mark and, and that, group of, of alpinists and, and Uli and as inspirations for them. 
but I would be remiss if we didn't point further back and say, you know, we didn't invent anything new. It was Mug Stumped it, you know, and it was sure. Michael Covington and it was Anatoly Bukharev and Gary Bocard and like those, those guys of, of that generation. Like, you know, you think about Covington being up there guiding on the scene in like 1981 or whatever in like double leather boots, like climbing capsule style. And then coming out and going and doing another route or, you know, these guys were, (laughs) I mean, they make us, you know, literally like, it's like, it's like, there's always this evolution, right? People will look back at 60 hours and the equipment we had at that time, which, you know, was cutting edge for then and think, man, that was, that was gnarly. They had like double plastic boots, right? Like, and and then we look back at, you know, Covington mugs and those guys and Bukhareev and they had double leather boots. It was like, Oh wow. And then, you know, so there's always this, there's always this kind of, um, but you have to, you have to pay, pay tribute to the, to the, to the grandfathers for sure. I haven't talked to any of these guys about this question, but do you perceive, you know, a future of this level of speed and commitment, um, in, in the Himalaya and in, you know, going as far as to, you know, if they if they had their eyes on the Slovak, do they have their eyes on the on the Rupal face and trying to to you know take that down to a couple days or or things like that? Do you feel that coming? Um, do you think as far as what you're watching, young alpinists, not just here but in Europe and and elsewhere, doing? Yeah, absolutely. Do um, I think that. The reality is, though, that I, I just want to caution everyone, the reality <laughs> of the conditions and the weather of mountains that much higher are uh, exponentially less favorable <laughs> to this kind of, of climbing, you know, like on the south face of Denali, it does get warm enough sometimes that everything melts. I mean, that's why those big streaks of ice are down there, uh, down those corners. That doesn't happen at 7,000 meters in the Himalaya. You know, it just doesn't. I mean, one of the, you know, only the most astute observers would pick up on this, but, you know, I was very careful in choosing routes in the Himalaya, and I really prefer something between southeast and southwest in aspect because it makes a massive difference, not just not in the temperature of your body, but in the conditions of the mountain. Like if if you're in a in a gully or whatever that never gets sun, that snow is just like bottomless facets. You know, it's it's never compact, and so you can't move through it quickly. So that's, that's just the reality of the physical reality of, of snow that sits around at seven or 8,000 meters for, you know, 50 years. It, you know, it, it's, you would just never have those conditions, you know, and if you think about, you know, the climbing in the Alps, for example, on the Mont Blanc Massif, you know, Mont Blanc Massif is this, at least up until now, has been this at this incredible sweet spot climatically where it's high enough. There's actually, it's high, both high enough and low enough. It's high enough that there's a lot of snow and low enough that there's a lot of melt freeze. It gets warm enough that things actually melt. Water runs down the rock corners. And then at night it freezes and built up ice. You need heat 
to consolidate the snow and deform the ice. And that just does not happen very easily in the Himalaya. That's just, that's just a fact. And so this is why the, I, I don't mean to belabor this point, but I think it's really important because that has everything to do with how fast you can move. Because if the condition, if the snow that you're moving on is soft, it takes a lot more energy and a lot more work to produce upward movement. <laughs> and, you know, when you're at 8,000 meters and you have 20% of an atmosphere of pressure, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a big, big deal. I was just curious. I mean, it, it, it may not happen as sort of like shockingly, um, you know, as, as like I said, that those kind of times, but certainly these guys and, and the Alpine, Alpine world has been, you know, looking at that kind of movement in, in the Himalayas, um, for a long time. And, um, you know, and it's hard to predict what might happen, but at the same time, I mean, we've, we've, you know, that it's been a few years now, but there was a, there was a, a, a few years of, of a lot of tragedy, um, that affected our community here over there, you know, on the Cherokee and all, all those places, um, which maybe, you know, yeah, it speaks to a little bit of like, how far committed you can get on some of these things. And even Hayden and Kyle's ascent with Josh, um, you know, talking to Hayden at the time, they, they, you know, again, they just slipped past the graveyard and, 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 uh, talking to him personally, it was, it was very close calls up there, um, in what yeah. they were doing. And so, yeah. yeah, so it's, yeah. I mean, your words of warning, I think are, are, are well intended in terms of like the jump from one place to the other. Yeah, I do think that there's a sweet spot, and I think there's a massive difference uh, until you've experienced it. It's hard to understand the difference between 6,000 meters and 7,000 meters, or the difference between 7,000 and 7,500, or 7,500 and 8,000. Uh, how that affects us physiologically and the amount of work we can do is is uh, pretty sobering. And the other piece of it, I think that there, what I want to say is that I think there's a real sweet spot, you know, we'll see how climate change affects things going forward. But, you know, in that six to 7,000 meter peak range, like I had great conditions on K7 for the most part, you know, and 60, you know, just under 7,000 meters, 6,942 meters. So, you know, of course it's South facing lots of sun, you know, that plays played into it, but that's there there there's a lot of terrain <laughs> there's a lot of terrain in that 6 to 7000 meter range especially in the Karakoram range that's solar aspects and has all the right ingredients for 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 cool stuff i think one of the one of the coolest like pumari cheese that uh you know this there's this group small group of french climbers kind of led by um Oh, I'm so bad with with names, uh, but anyway, there's uh, there, yeah, there's been some incredible you know mm -hmm. climbs in these kinds of peaks lately. So, yeah, I just yeah. hope that they all keep in mind that the idea of success is dying at home of old age, surrounded by and right. by surrounded by family and friends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I would have said that that it had kind of moved past that a little bit um up until a few years ago so i don't know but mm. um and i also misspoke i said cherokee and it's the choctaw that's under under lay talk and and the ogres right isn't that right 
Yeah. That's Anyhow, correct, yeah. Um, yeah. So you talked a little bit about walking away from sponsorship um, earlier in the show as a crutch. You felt like, you know, you maybe didn't deserve it anymore. I, I know you've always had a little bit of a, of a old school, at least in, earlier in your career, old school sort of, um, you know, allergy to to sponsor in a sense, you know, maybe coming back all the way from the Messner era and all that sort of thing. But um, one of the things you mentioned moving away from it uh, and some of the things you've written about it is also sort of making room for, for younger athletes or, or up and comers and feeling like maybe you would, you would, you, you could probably like be there as a placeholder for as long as you wanted based on your, your reputation. Um, can you talk a little bit about that idea of, of not only moving away from it to, to allow yourself to evolve, but um, to sort of get out of the way. Oh, we should do a whole conversation just about this. I have so many thoughts and I'd be curious to know what other people are thinking. Cause I'm admittedly in a bit of a vacuum on this lately, but I think it's um, well, you know, my old school allergy to sponsorship, I think one of the things is I came up at a time, you know, where I got my f- first sponsorship came in the f- form of two free ice tools. I was 29 years old. So I was relatively old, I would say, when I ever kind of got any kind of recognition. Uh, and then even the way I got it, I was really proud of. It was like, I didn't know the guy that I was climbing with was kind of a, you know, you know, pretty senior person at Black Diamond. He was just a guy I met in the bar I went out climbing with and we went out a couple days in a row. And I, I was just on this first ascent spree in, in the South Fork of the, of the Shoshone in, in near Cody, Wyoming. And, uh, he was impressed and, didn't even tell me anything, but just like put some ice tools and a pair of crampons in a box that showed up at my apartment, you know, a few weeks later. And the thing at the time, and this still exists, I know for a fact, is it, it goes back to this this lack of clarity about what climbing is and this conflicting worldview of climbing as to whether it's sport or art. And there's has always been within climbing this sport view. And at that time in the 90s, it was sort of epitomized by, you know, sort of, I can't remember what we called them, but it was, you know, you know, Alex Lowe and, and Conrad Anker and Greg Child. They were like the three, you know, stars of the North Face, right? And, you know, but they had to go on these trips and they had to create media. They had to do... X, Y, Z. And it it was like, it was definitely a job. Like it wasn't about the climbing and what the, it wasn't about their experience. It was about, okay, you guys go and you need to provide these deliverables. And that's still the way a lot of people approach sponsorship on both the climber side and on the company side. The, 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 but for me, that's always been at odds with how I experienced climbing and I think one of the things that I'm really grateful for that I was able to have that internal compass and know that that's what was right for me. And that allowed me to develop relationships with sponsors that shared that viewpoint and vision. So I can honestly say that in 22 years as a sponsored climber in varying degrees, I never had a single sponsor tell me what to do. 
in any way, shape, or form because that was it was never even brought up. You know, I never was told I had to like deliver A, let alone A, B, C, D, E, F. And this still goes on today. And I think it's it's because of this misunderstanding of of what the climbing experience is. And this I want to tie this into trying to get our community to understand and to provide a roadmap for people who have experienced, whether it's Tommy moving into more of a, you know, activist politician role, me moving into more of a, you know, entrepreneur role that still is involved in the climbing community through upper athlete and our training methodologies and our coaching and our training plans and our training groups or something, something like that. Some, some roadmap, right? Because if there's a roadmap, there's a way, there's a, always a way forward. And I think what motivates a lot of people, not everyone, but certainly something that motivates me is feeling like there's a way forward. And this is one of the things that made it clear to me that I needed to stop being sponsored is I got a new sponsorship. I got a sponsorship of uh, this company called Coros, which makes like sports watches, GPS watches, and it was a good amount of money. And they were like, I really liked them. I had a good relationship with the CEO. Like they see everything seemed really cool. But then like I found myself doing these things that I was like, God, like this isn't, this isn't me. This is the old me. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life pretending to be the old me. And then when at this, this happened at the same time, you know, right before, just before COVID, this, this started to happen. And, you know, we had the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, we had like a lot of the Me Too movement, which of course, like these are all connected because these were people that groups of people that had not been heard, who had not had a voice you know, indigenous lands movement, these people like saying, no, we have a voice and we're going to express it. This was my experience and you can't just ignore it anymore. Like just generally to the world, not to anyone in particular. I didn't take it personally. And I was like, wow, that, that is, that is so powerful. To, I think it was a real shift in literally in the fabric of society, at least for me, it felt like that, whereby we started to acknowledge and accept a broader range of voices and a broader range of, let's say, stories and experiences. And as a white male, it also forced me to look at the privilege that even as a, you know, middle class kid that was quote, not unquote, like, it's not like I was from a, like a, a rich family or something. Like my mom was a teacher. My dad was an accountant, like respectable professions, but we were very middle class, but yet I never thought I had privilege. And then all of these things came out and it made me face my privilege and be like, wow, this, 
inherent privilege is a big reason that I was able to do all these things that I was able to do. I was so privileged to be able to be a sponsored climber for all these years. Like, who gets to do that? <laughs> and am I going to just keep doing that? Am I going to, you know, and you've, you, you've got to understand the, you know, as, as I do and you do and, and those of us that have worked our whole lives do that, you know, money is a thing. <laughs> Budgets are a thing. Like commerce is a thing and there's only so much to go around. And if I just continue to occupy the space, I am in my opinion, by definition, taking money from people who could be using it in other ways. And when I face that and I face the fact that I had expressed everything I wanted to express or everything, not everything I wanted to, everything that I was going to express through climbing in that in the act of climbing, at least not maybe in the coaching and the writing and the teaching and the, these things that, okay, I've said what I was going to say. I've expressed what I'm going to, was going to express. I've, I've painted my masterpieces. I've done my art. I've evolved into something else. that's more interesting for me anyway. It's not like I was, had nothing else I wanted to do. I was like, I'm really interested in these other things I've found. And all of that added up to me to like a really clear, it's time to step away. It's time to throw away the crutches and like stand on my own two feet. And, you know, literally for the first time since I was 30 years old, you know, when I started making money as a climber. I mean, before that I was a mountain guide and yeah, I worked a day, I got paid for a day and I lived that way for 10, 12 years. But from the ages of 30 to, you know, 50, Roughly, I, you know, I didn't need to work. I, I had enough. I had a total, I had a nice house. I had cars that started when you turned the key every time. Uh, I had all the things. I had food on my table. Like I had whatever, you know, had a little bit of disposable income. So I wanted to end it also on my terms and with gratitude and just be able to say that was enough and thank you and next, please. That's kind of, yeah, sorry, that's I, I talk awesome. too much. No, no, you, the normal cast is about talking too much um, or enough, but uh, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's cool. I mean, what you just said ending on, on your own terms, because it's like, you know, when you're inside the industry and I am to a certain extent, I've always had, not always, but I mean, this, this podcast actually has put my feet in it more than it ever was as a, as just a climber. But, you know, you hear about the drop. Oh, they got dropped. They got dropped. They got dropped. And there's like bad feelings and there's like, you know, but eventually everybody, I mean, like you just said, it's commerce, it's budget. It's like, what use are you to us? Um, and when you're of no more use, I mean, it's, it's, that's what it is. You're, you're, you're jettisoned. So I think that's also, it just is a thread through your whole climbing career, you know, on my terms on, on this is what I want to do and how I want to do it. Um, I mean, even with the PLA d'Or that, that, you know, those, those years when when you were involved with that you were you were sort of like is this is this me is this my thing or is this someone else dictating the worth of of what i've done and i think you had a lot of so yeah i i don't think it's really surprising if you look at your life that you chose a moment to be like okay i i go away on my terms and move on to the next thing i'm not pushed there or dropped 
there as as the word we use when when someone loses their sponsorship. Yeah, and I think it's really important for climbers to adjust their viewpoint towards sponsorships because I think that and I've I say this from experience because I've made this mistake myself. I think that there is a tendency to approach it from a position of scarcity that like I'm going to write up this great proposal and tell this and sell myself to this company and tell them I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to be this super environmental advocate. And I'm going to like climb these super hard first ascents and blah, blah, blah. And try to like make yourself into what you think they want you to be because your gloves have holes in them and your climbing shoes are worn out and your rope is black from all the grime and dirt. And, you know, I think that switching that into a place like, you know, and this is what I think we could probably agree on. This, this is part of, you know, the, the, the beauty and grace of Hayden Kennedy, right. Was that he just owned being who he was. And, if you liked that, great. But if you didn't, I was also fine with them. And I think that more climbers need to approach sponsorship and climbing and themselves and their their art, because it is an art for me, that way. Just like, hey, this is what I do. This is how I do it. And if it is meant to be and someone finds value in that and wants to become a partner in me in helping me further express this, Maybe I will consider that, and maybe that will help me express what I want to express more fully. But I don't want to ever be in a position where I need that. Like, it's not that hard to get a job and go, like, paint some houses and make some bucks and, you know, hang some Christmas lights, whatever it is, and, like, go buy that rope or, you know, whatever it is you need. And I think that people kind of catastrophize it, like, oh, I, I, you know, need this, I need that. It's like, this was a long time ago. A, a climber who unfortunately is no longer with us. I met him at the trade show. I was like, the, I'd never, it was really early in my, maybe the first or second time I'd ever been to a trade show. And I remember him coming up to me and he's like talking, he was really stressed. He's like, all of a sudden he looks at me and he's like, socks, socks, I need socks. I forgot, I need to go socks. And then he like runs off to try to find a socks Sponsor. I was just sitting there going, I, I thought about that a lot over the years. Like, wow. I mean, you know, like socks are like four bucks, dude. Like at that time, right now they're probably 40, but uh, it's like, shit, just, I mean, just work for like four hours and you'll have a pair of socks. Like what's, you know, so I, I don't mean to, be, I'm taking this in a, in a, the wrong direction now, but I think that, for climbers to to really own their their experience and own their value to the community for just being who they are and expressing the sport how their hearts want to express it that's actually going to bring us all the furthest along you know we've been talking a lot about you you know stepping away from climbing or at least climbing the act of and and who you were as an alpinist before um you know i made that joke obviously that you're not like just disappearing into some other world completely. But um, one of the things that is a thread through your book is is finding these, these. I think you even use the word synergistic or synergy between partners. 
you know, this, this closeness, this, um, you even said that, you know, one of the problems with your first marriage was that like, there was this, you know, maybe this jealousy of you being as closer to your partners on the climb than you were to your partner in marriage. Um, which is, you know, that's not anything that any alpinist is, is like, um, not used to in a sense, having this kind of dichotomy between these two worlds that don't go well together. I mean, speaking of like the Boardman Tasker days, like none of those guys had like wonderful home lives, but nevertheless, that friendship, that connection, what about that in your life? I mean, obviously you're, you know, you're happily married to this wonderful woman who I happen to to know a little bit and, and thinks, thinks she's amazing. At least what I know of her is only a little bit, but she's always been such a joy to, to hang out with when you guys were around here more often and um you've got that but what about this um this connection that that you used to yearn for and, and actually spent you know a inordinate amount of time thinking about and how to find this again you know when you you'd found it one time and then you'd spent the next few years searching again um where, where is that in your life and is that you know a hole that is still there or, or are you finding ways to fill that just with, with family or, or uh, friends professionally or anything else? I think that this is part of the beauty of growing older too, that I've approached, I've learned to approach, you know, connection with other people from this realization, just with what you said with my climbing partners, people would, ebb and flow in my life as a climber and you know while I have these incredible relationships with like Barry Blanchard or Mark Twight or, or, or my friend Stephen Van Sickle that I've climbed with a bunch who I'm sure will listen to this and be tickled to hear his name mentioned or Marco Prezel or Vince Anderson or these people like who I actually don't see them very much anymore but that's part of that's part of life too i've come to realize you know and it's a sort of the scarcity abundance mindset almost whereas i used to feel like i i finally got like a great partner and i was like holding on to them so tight and then you know they would they would transition out and i would be so devastated but I've learned to view it the other way. Like when people want it, when it's time for someone to go their own way and to no longer be part of your life, the best thing to do for them and for you is to let them go. And so, you know, for sure, I can, I have incredible relationships, you know, in all the normal ways, like through, through work, through like some, some of the athletes I've coached. Uh, some of my coworkers, uh, you know, my other areas of, of interest in life. I've, I'm making friendships and building friendships. And those are incredibly rich ex- relationships, and they also won't last forever, right? And that's okay. And so I think that I've really, you know, sort of just come to accept that, I think, and and appreciate that. And it makes me appreciate those relationships I have when I have them. And it's all that sort of idea of impermanence that we've all, you know, tried, struggled so so hard to wrap our heads around, but is so very real. And as you get older, it becomes a little easier to keep it in perspective, I think. 
we joke around about, you know, there's romantic relationships and then you've got your partner, your climbing partners and like, you know, people are like, oh, we had a shiver bivy together, whatever. We all, we all make these jokes about them being actual, um, you know, sort of romantic relationships. But then when you step back and look at it, they are, they, they may not involve a physical romanticism, but there's this connection and, and all the same things happen because when you were talking earlier about how you were kind of pissed about, you know, some of these, some of your older partners, like, you know, stepping away, you're like, what, you know, it's like a breakup. And, and in a very minor way, I've got a couple friends in my mind that are like that too, that are, they don't climb anymore. You know, that something else grabbed them like surfing or whatever. And, you know, I'm happy for them. We hang out, we see each other once in a while, but I'm also sort of like, fuck, dude, we had like some other stuff to do. Like, why aren't you climbing anymore? You want to go? You're going to be here. Like, let's go, you know, like, let's go relive it all. And and that's really the thing is so much of, I think, older climbing careers, myself included, is that you sort of have to realize that you're pining for this thing that that's gone. And it's it's not going to be the same, even if you are as fit and as strong you're not going to have that experience again. You're, you're trying, and I find myself not so much anymore, but in my forties was like, you know, I'd get on a plane to Europe and I'd be like, okay, this is going to be like that trip I had 10 years ago when this happened and this happened and it was so magical. And right away you're disappointed because it's not happening exactly the same way. And it, to me, it closes. I realized it was closing me off to, to these possibilities of what the new experience was going to have. And, um, it sounds a little bit like your at least your transition uh, was a lot like that. Like, no, 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 I have to go have that experience again, and I have to find that connection again, exactly the same as it was before. And I think you're right about growing older. It's like you, you, and I mean, health, healthy anyway, is to realize that no, those are gone, and you can't relive them, even if you could get into the shape you were in or whatever you think it would would possibly take. So I think that if you know, is about relationships as well, because, you know, I think I also romanticize romantic relationships I had that were terrible in the time, you know, but you're <laughs> like, well, that was, you know, like you think on oh, that one girl that I dated in my twenties was, she was pretty rad. And it's like, no, at the time it was a mess. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's <laughs> no, like totally. climbing is like that. We we're, we're like, it's like our old flame and we want it back, so to speak. I think it's a great analogy and great words. I think a lot of people like hearing you talk about it that way. I think that um, there's this process. One of the themes that I feel like we've been kind of talking around a lot is this process of, there is a process to letting go of something. And there's also a process of engaging with something. And for something as complex as climbing, you know, it's this, it is a lot like a long-term romantic relationship in that, you know, you, you're going to have 15 different relationships with your wife over, you know, 30 years or whatever it is, just like you're going to have 15 different relationships with climbing over 30 years of climbing. And we should embrace that as something beautiful about it, not just like long for how it used to be, because that's just, that just leads to suffering <laughs> and, and disappointment. And, and that's the opposite of sort of being in the moment and, and, you know, actually, actually living. So, you know, it's powerful lessons. I mean, there's lots of applications. And one of the things that I have enjoyed so 
much about climbing. And one of the things I enjoy in my current kind of role or job as a, essentially I think of myself more and more or less as an entrepreneur as much as anything because I'm taking a lot of risk and trying to create things like training plans or, or a training group experience or coaching experience and and make them so wonderful that people will you know trade their hard-earned money for that experience right and that is just as intellectually and emotionally challenging as the best alpinism is right like and that's what i loved about alpinism that i missed about like pure rock climbing is because it just had this depth that goes with the risk of having it literally you know on the line that having the uh having the intellectual challenge of figuring it out am i really capable of doing this or am i fooling myself into thinking i'm capable of doing this what is the truth what is possible what is my part of that possibility what is the outside world's part of that possibility and how can i shift those things to get to the outcome i want you know this is this is very much like you know, uh, small business entrepreneurship, you know, it's like there's all these variables and there's no one truth and there's no one right answer. And you're just, you know, engaged and trying to figure it out. And nobody ever really can tell you, like nobody can hand you the formula or hand you the book or whatever that sums everything up. You read like every book you can and try to like pull all these things together that seem to apply to you. And then you make up your own thing anyway. And, you know, it's, you know, that's life. Like that's what's, what's so, so interesting about all of these, all of these experiences and why it's so much fun. I mean, this is why, like I had so much fun as an alpinist, like just cause I had just as much fun, like trying to figure out, like how to climb the RuPaul phase as I did probably more fun than I actually, you know, did climbing it because climbing was actually not that much type one fun. But, no, that seems, you know, it seemed quite miserable. Yeah. The actual climbing of it. <laughs> but but the puzzle of it. climbing um, it. That's, yeah. That's the puzzle. Beauty. I mean, I think that was one of your superpowers, frankly. Um, all, all, again, all you guys that were, we're building on what had been done before, but also looking for the ways to improve upon it. Because, I mean, I think it's very easy to, I mean, in any walk of life, it's easy just to, to think, okay, it's, it's been figured out. I'll just keep doing it the way, you know, how can I improve on a, on, you know, a Messner? How can I improve on it? Any of these guys, but it takes a, a visionary and I, you know, I'll, I would put you among, among visionaries in, in Alpine climbing, whether you like that or not, but um, that's what it takes is a little, is, is a way to look at the way things need to be changed. And, you know, those, the guys on the Slovak this last spring, you know, they had a, a, a vision that had to shirk so many status quo ideas about alpinism before they could do it. And, and you did Absolutely. too. I mean, you talked about how you were, you were standing there afraid that the season before, and you had to get rid of that fear. So, um, it's pretty fascinating the way it all kind of, kind of works together. You know, some point in this interview, you mentioned, I think early on, you know, I, I like, you said, I like myself. I like where I am now. And I think that, you know, based on at least reading your book, at least earlier in life was probably a hard fought battle to get to a place like that. And I think everyone in the world is, you know, 
some level, some point in their life fighting that battle to, to be comfortable in their skin and to be happy with who they are or where they've, they've come. And so it's, it's quite a proud statement, I think, to say um, something like that. You know, and, and, and your life has been laced with tragedy. I mean, you, if you're an alpinist, friends have come and they've gone and they've been killed in the mountains. And, um, you know, accidents, as you mentioned, can, can trigger PTSD. So, you know, it's not like you're on easy street. Can you point to a moment or if not a moment, then at least, you know, a time when you started to wake up in the morning with that feeling? And, and if there was, you know... We talked about you evolving past and and you know still trying to be a climber and finally moving on and it was you know probably it was trouble with your marriage you know you you implied and what happened or, or or was there a moment or was there a time or a realization um when you were like i think i'm i think I'm done and and I think I can move past these feelings that I'm having and be comfortable in my skin was it a moment with your family was it uh you know is, is there anything out there that that really crystallized it for you? Yeah. Uh, well, honestly, it was really recently, you know, like in the last weeks or months even. Mm-hmm. And and it may be not that way six months from now. Sure, sure. It's precarious. So it always I, is. It's yes. precarious, right? And, you know, I think that one of the sub one of the things that as a community we're talking about a lot more that I think is super important is PTSD. You know, I've suffered a lot from PTSD. I've suffered a lot from depression that I think is related to PTSD. I've done a lot of therapy, you know, I've done a lot of work <laughs> uh to to get myself uh to this point. Um and in a way, a lot of it often felt like alpine climbing in the sense that like, if I don't keep moving, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to die. <laughs> and so I got to just kind of, this seems to be the way forward. So you just sort of swim through the fog to try to, cause you think that's the way forward. And, and then you have periods where, where it truly, truly comes together and, and you feel amazing and it's, uh, and it's going really well. And, uh, you know, I think I'm, I've been through, uh, some really difficult times. And, uh, one of the things about going through difficult times is it makes the good times that much better in a way, because you're like, wow, like six months ago, like I was in the shit, like that was not fun. But now I'm like, so, so lighthearted and feel so good when I wake up and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, that could change too. And I try not to get too, you know, anxiety is another part of it for me, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, it's a complicated, complicated thing. And, you know, it's it's precarious and i think that one of the best things that i think we can do as a and i keep using the word culture because i really believe climbing is a culture and as much as as a i've heard other words used to describe it but i i really like that that construct and i think that the, in our culture we 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 are talking a lot about these topics around, you know, loss and tragedy and, 
you know, near misses and PTSD and mental health and depression and anxiety and, you know, mental health generally and how we can, you know, treat our mental illness. And, you know, I think that the reality is that a lot of my climbing came from a, a lack of tools for managing my mental health and climbing was essentially how I medicated myself. You know, I just, you know, a little bit, it is right. It's just my unique or not, probably not unique, like, but my specific makeup and how I show up in the world, it was like a little bit of feeling like I was not enough, a little bit of ADHD, hyper-focused, you know, style like you know how many of your climbing friends chris have you been sitting around and they you know when you're four beers into the campfire they're just like yeah man if i hadn't found climbing i would have been a criminal or something right like like i think i don't know if since the advent of climbing gyms if that's so much the conversation now but in our cult in our generation for our generation that was mostly the conversation it was like those other guys around the campfire when we were both 24 22 whatever i mean they were all saying that you know i wasn't because i didn't come from that kind of uh, you know I, I just didn't have that gene or what or whatever i didn't have that makeup but most of my friends did and that was what they were saying to me and i was like whoa okay and i didn't know why i was doing what i was doing but i was definitely expressing uh, something that I, through my actions, which manifested as climbing, that I didn't really understand. And thank God I found climbing in a positive way to express them. And this is one of the things that I want to change the conversation or start to be part of this new conversation around what is success with climbing. And um, not that we have to overly define it, but I want to, you know, try to show and, and express a roadmap for people that, there is another way other than, you know, kind of accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment. And I'll use Uli again as an example. I think I could also use Hayden as an example too. But like with Uli, it was for me, frankly, more acute because he was 40 when he died and he was, I knew from our personal conversations that he was so close to being done with that and ready for the good stuff. Like, I feel like right now, honestly, I'm in, I'm doing the most important work of my life. Like I am creating something that provides a lot of value for the community that supported me and, and allowed me to do all that climbing for over the years. I finally feel like I'm truly earning my keep and, and then some and giving back. And Uli was right on the cusp of that. Right. And, you know, Hayden, had he, you know, lived to a ripe old age, he would, he, that was in him too, that core goodness, right. That he would have, you know, like his parents have that, you know, he's just like, got this, like such a good, person in there and and that would have eventually come out and expressed and there are people who show up and they go to university and they are like that when they wake up in the morning every morning and they go on and they have amazing careers and make incredible impact on the world and then there's the rest there's us who are like these misfits and we have all these whatever things that we work through but we have climbing and that helps us process and we work through that and then you know you know you found this role as you know kind of 
chief storyteller of our community, I would say. And almost historian in a, in a sense too, like, right. Like recording all these tales and asking all these questions and having these conversations and, and, and archiving that. And like, you know, there's, there's a million ways to do the great work of your life. That is actually the climbing is just preparing you for. And I could not ever create and build uphill athlete. Had I not been in climbing and done what I'd done in climbing for so long, because everything I learned, I learned from that process and learned from the people I met in that process. I got to like sit around in meetings and like listen to the Chenards talk and listen to the, these incredible, you know, minds in, in the outdoor industry talk about marketing or talk about, you know, I learned so much, you know, I went to the school of life for, you know, 20 years and I absorbed so much and now I'm able to like put all these things together and create something new that's hopefully valuable. So this is, this is where like, I feel like I'm on my soapbox again here, but <laughs> this is where I, I feel like with climbing and with outdoor sport, we need to really move away from the, you know, this and I think social media, frankly, is is making it worse, not better, because of the news cycle is so short now. I want people to engage in their process and engage in expressing themselves and worry about and have a really long term perspective on it and developing themselves and know that they will develop into something better and more powerful. And they will show up as something. And by powerful, I mean good power. I mean like agency in the world as they grow older and mature and learn more. And, you know, that's, and that's also something, you know, in this day and age of chat GPT and all this, like that can never be reproduced by a model, right? Like this is truly an organic process and only us humans can experience it. And so it's only going to become more important and more valuable. So where does fatherhood fit in to, um, you know, we started that, that, that particular question on mental health, where does fatherhood fit into it? I'm I'm a dad um and probably like you when I was in my 20s and 30s the prime of my climbing I looked at people with kids as like fucking idiots like why would you do that to yourself um and yet here we both are and I don't maybe you don't agree maybe you've always wanted a family <laughs> but um but yeah so where does fatherhood uh fit into uh I guess your mental health and and who you are today as a person versus again that 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 machine that was cranking up those mountains. Well, tell me if this is TMI, you could edit it out, I guess, if it is. But when I was like 26, I made the urologist give me a vasectomy because I was terrified of having children because that would have ruined my life wow. because I, I was entirely focused on, on climbing. And that was like really the worst thing that could have possibly happened to me. So fatherhood. Yeah. I think that connecting it, today and mental health like for me i think after my accident and when i was 39 and recovering from that and i realized that one of the experiences that i had cut myself off from was having kids and 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 that's you could, you could say that in the, in the most physical kind of reductionist right. viewpoint but all the parents out there will understand this and you will understand this. Like when you hold your child on your chest and they're falling asleep or 
maybe you're putting them to bed or maybe they're sick or, I mean, for sure. My kids are brats sometimes and they scream and <laughs> I put them in timeout. I do like, we all have this life, right? That's not always this, but there is also this experience of love that is for, was for me, like, just completely mind-blowing. Like, I have a really good relationship. I love my parents. Like, I have an incredible relationship with my mother and father, and I love them dearly. But your own child, like, taking care of that and protecting that and nourishing that and raising that, like, that is just something else. And that, I think, really actually taught me what love is, which opened me up to understanding how I do love my mom and my dad and how I do love my wife and how I do love my coworkers and other people in my community. And it's, you know, there's different, you know, there's, you know, the, 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 the filial love and there's, we could get all philosophical about the different types of love or whatever, but that is something that I was not prepared for. I don't know about you. Well, what about the fear? Do you have, are you scared at all? Do you ever get scared? I get scared sometimes about raising yeah. this this person or, or letting them down or any of those sorts of things. Oh yeah, terrifying. It's also been like, but again, how do you? What do you do with that fear? Like for me, it's been a huge catalyst for doing therapy and working on myself because I find myself like not showing up for my children the way I want to. Like I hear myself saying words that, you know, maybe my father said that, you know, hurt me at the time. And I'm like, damn it, I'm doing that. I said, you know, those kinds of things. And it's not a judgment against my father or anything. But I was like, you, you know, this love connects you, has connected me to my feelings in a new way. And so I'm able to like, it sounds funny, but I actually, actually feel that actually like physically feel that. I think I spent a lot of my life shutting down my feelings and I don't think that's just me, right? Like, especially for men, I think that's a, a pretty common experience. You're, there's lots of reasons I don't need to go into that, but I, this experience of love with my kids has allowed me to tap into other emotions wake me up to this whole world of feelings that I have. I notice those feelings when I am yelling at my kids, when I'm like, oh, ooh, that doesn't feel good. Like, mm, okay, I got to go figure that out. Let me do some therapy. Let me read some things. Let me talk to some people. And then I evolve as a, as a person a little bit. And that's, yeah, I'm, I'm scared of, aren't we all scared of like messing up our kids, right? Um like the, I don't want to mess up. I want I want to raise like really good, functional, healthy, wonderful humans, and I'm terrified that I'm going to mess that up. And I think I most likely think I probably will, but at least I'm trying to take <laughs> actions that. Well, I mean, we all will, right? Like it's imperfect, right. and right. but you know, at least I'm trying to use that information in a way to uh, try to do a little better. And these cycles, as you probably realize, are generational mm -hmm. actually anyway. They're not things that you change in just like one day or one week or one year. They're changes that happen right. over generations. What you said about shutting down your feelings is so fascinating because it's that is such a tool 
in climbing in general and and in alpine climbing it's 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 i mean it's this powerful powerful tool that you use to get up these things to brush off the tragedy so you can climb again i mean and i think one of the more profound parts of your book was and and the way you structured it was really interesting this kind of litany of of a few short incidences and you were able to just brush them off so again to finish on this evolution thing it's just it's just fascinating that you know that work you're doing is kind of coming back from that and your and your kids are teaching you this way of engaging with your feelings that you spent 20 years you know trying to shut down um, because it was survival at that point to do that i did not even realize how good i became at it until you know until alpine mentors actually and i saw that they they really struggled to do that and i could not understand like like how come you can't just switch that off like i didn't get it um and yeah that's you know i don't know does that make it bad you know bad that i taught me to to do that i don't know just it just it just was part of it and i think that it's also so interesting that I think so many people who, so many of my friends that are alpinists, I think are a little bit on the spectrum and they're hypersensitive actually. And I, 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 I put myself in that. I'm, I'm very, I'm actually, the reason I turn that, learn to turn that off is because I am super sensitive. And my oldest son, especially, is exactly like me. He is so, so sensitive. And I, I, I like, I experience his emotions if I'm anywhere within like a, you know, 10 foot radius of him. Like, it's just like, there's just a cable between like our bodies that I experience everything he does emotionally and he, and he, and this and vice versa. So, which I can work, work both ways, right. I can soothe him and I can, and make him more agitated. Um, but a lot of the climbers that we've even talked about today, they're, they're hypersensitive people. They're, they're really sensitive individuals. And that, is both a superpower and a liability. And I think that there's an interesting connection there and that we go into these environments that actually teach us to turn that down. So what does your climbing look like now? Uh, You know, Chris, I actually don't really go climbing, to be honest. I go ski touring. I, I went cragging a few times. But in all honesty, um, I get really bad PTSD from going rock climbing or any kind of climbing. And I never know what's going to trigger it. And it's taken me a while to figure this out. Um, But I finally accepted that and just let that be what it is. Because last spring, what, what happened was I actually got a... Uh, I ruptured a joint in my second toe, um, trying a route that I think you've done out there. I tried it with uh, Hayden, who floated it, of course, uh, out up out in Uniweep, this twelve plus thing out there, and I ruptured a joint in my toe, and it forced me to not climb for almost two years. 
And then when it healed, I went climbing, and then I recognized that it was the it was the I was having essentially like flashbacks, and I could never anticipate what would trigger it. Sometimes one time it was literally just a way a backpack was leaning against the base of a crag. It was just how it happened to be sitting. It just like took me to this other place in this other time, and it, and it was like falling off. I was like, fall, it was like literally feel, having this feeling like I'm just like falling through infinite space. Like that's how I experienced that. And then just being like in the worst depression, you know, for weeks afterwards. So I don't go climbing anymore. I go ski touring. I take my kids climbing and, you know, and for, for the us, for that, you know, I tell them that daddy's a mountain guide. That's all they know about my climbing. And it's only about having fun. And I like put up like quick draws if they want to like hand over hand up the quick draws or if they want to get like aid climb from bolt to bolt, like whatever they want to do, as long as they're having fun, it's, it's all good. Do you want it back? No, I don't. More accurately, I should say there's parts of it I want back. Like, I've essentially lost friends. Like, you were saying your friends that are into surfing or whatever. Like, I'm one of those guys. Like, right? Like, I go, I ski and I don't climb. And so, you know, I don't get to hang out with Marco, for example, because he wants to go climbing. And I'm like, meh. not going to go climbing with you, buddy. I'm, I'm really sorry, but I can't. And so, yeah, there are, there are parts of that, but there's also, so other things that I'm really super passionate about doing. And the reality is I did so much climbing in my lifetime (laughs) that, that it's like, do I really need to do like another couple hundred days of climbing in however many years I have left on this planet? Like, like I did thousands of days of climbing in my lifetime. Like I've, I've, I've been everywhere. I've climbed so many routes, like, you know, I might, yeah, I don't know. Right. And you're, you're into flying now right yeah i've been working on my private pilot's license for about a year and a half and i'm about to graduate here in the next month or two so that's my i i love it like i don't i don't know um no people don't know this i don't think about me but you know when i was a kid i wanted to be an aeronautical engineer my my heroes were always explorers like you know the trappers and the the Oregon trail went through the town I grew up in, in Oregon. And, you know, I was like, idolized like Lewis and Clark and, you know, all those kinds of stories. Um, and so it seemed to me that as I grew up, that the only kind of remaining exploration to do was in outer space. So, you know, very typical kind of child so i wanted to be and i just saw okay well i i'm gonna go and i'll become an aeronautical engineer and a pilot and I'll, maybe i could be an astronaut oh <laughs> then i then i met real climbing and that 
whole dream went right out the window and I never saw any of it. But one of the things I loved about climbing in Alaska is I love the flying because you're in, in and out of bush planes all the time. And, you know, so my retirement plan is to eventually uh, work up to a, a commercial license and uh, spend the summers doing flight seeing in the Alaska range with uh, with tourists and fly them around Denali. And I'll be like that 80 year old guy with the, with the big thick glasses, like flying around in the beaver or whatever, like and landing on the glacier. That sounds like a pretty good time to me. <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Steve for doing that. And you know what? Thanks to Steve for bringing some gear. Sounded great, even though he was across the ocean in Austria. Sounded like we were in the room together because he had a good mic and knew how to use it. You know what? If there's a small chance someone's going to do a podcast with you, you should get a mic. USB mics are cheap, and I don't know what Apple's forcing you to plug in with these days, FireWire or whatever. I'm sure they'll take it away next year. Anyway, get a mic if there's a chance that you'll be on a podcast. They're a pro dog. Okay, if you want to get in touch with Steve, it's easy enough. Go to UphillAthlete.com. That's his coaching site, his business. Inquire there if you want to get involved with Uphill Athlete. And if Steve happens to tell you that I've never asked him to do an EnormaCast, would you please send him this link? I'd appreciate that. Okay, that's enough. Thanks for sticking around. Don't forget to check your knots. to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering.